Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Welcome to this edition of All Options Considered. I'm Tanveer Sandhu, Chief Global Derivative Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg. On this episode, I'll be joined by Mandy Zhu, Head of Derivatives Market Intelligence at SIBO. Mandy, great to have you on. Thanks, Tanveer. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's discuss the reactivity of VIX to market declines. A question I often get asked is, what is preferred between S&P puts or VIX calls? as a way to hedge a market sell-off. And while it depends on what type of risk is being hedged and market pricing, in general, VIX calls have a greater payoff in tail events as vol rises in a convex manner with large market declines. So volatility-based hedges have the benefit of convexity. While in moderate market declines, VIX calls don't do as well as S&P puts. And what we've seen this year is a rise in VIX core volume, which has been trending higher over the last two years. So this reactivity of VIX to S&P, what are you making of it? You know, that, that's a great question. So as you pointed out, we've seen a very strong uptick in VIX option volume this year. So uh, volumes are actually on pace to set a record, exceeding you know the highs that we saw in 2017, which was a pretty remarkable year in, in index volatility. Um, and I've gotten a lot of questions as to why that is the case, right? Because like you pointed out, you know, VIX hasn't really been all that reactive over the past two years. And in fact, you know, the volatility has steadily declined all year, um, you know, as markets have rallied. So what's driving it, and I think you kind of touched upon it, which is that investors typically buy VIX options for tail hedges, right, for that convexity. And what they're playing for is, you know, usually a doubling or tripling of volatility. So, you know, take a big, you know, black swan type of event to drive that kind of market dislocation, that market uh, move. So if you think about, you know, VIX last year, right, it was elevated like 20 to 30 range to get a doubling or tripling volatility from there. You know, you really are looking at, you know, a once in a generation type of event like COVID March 2020 type of event. Whereas this year, as volatility has declined, right, when VIX is at 15 to get, you know, VIX to, what, 45, that's not as difficult or, you know, it doesn't take as outside the kind of, of a catalyst to have that kind of event. So that's one, is that historically, we do tend to see VIX option volumes pick up when volatility levels are low, but that's not it. So the other, the other factor I would also really point out is leverage and positioning. And that historically has been, you know, the catalyst for big VIX moves. And I think that kind of really solves the puzzle or is the reason why VIX was so, quote unquote, unreactive last year, um, is the fact that last year investors chose to deleverage by just moving out of equities going to cash, right? So when you move to cash, you don't need to spend premium to hedge. So, you know, the demand for hedges just wasn't there. Whereas this year, as people have relevered, re-risked, um, and are in fact p- potentially you know chasing the rally higher, leverage is building within the system, and therefore the risk of a massive deleveraging event, um, you know, is certainly higher this year than last year. Yeah, last year we saw, you know, the reactivity of VIX to S and P decline, so it was a challenging year. We put that down to 
pretty much what you're saying is the way the market declined is one reason. It was a slow grind lower. And the interest rate risk was well telegraphed. So there was that positioning adjustment at the start of the year. So lately, what we've seen is a rising long-end bond yields on the higher for longer theme and the resilience of the US economy. And that's seen recently an increase of correlation with rates and the equity market. However, we are still below the bond levels we saw last year. And going to your point about, you know, we need to see a significant move. What we really need is a liquidity event to revive these measures of convexity and skew pricing. Yeah, so I, I would say a couple of things. So I get asked this question a lot, right, which is, you know, what, what would it take to get VIX uh, higher? And it really depends on when you say higher, how high do you mean? You know, I think for VIX to be in the 20 to 30 range, kind of similar to what we saw last year, you just need a moderate pickup in correlation, right? So right now we're, we're in a very unusual environment where correlation is very low within stocks. Uh, we have, we're seeing very high dispersion. And that's partly the reason you know, why VIX has been as kind of muted as it has. So if we just get a slight change in the correlation environment, it, you, know, you can easily, holding all else equal, see VIX back to the 20 to, 20 to 30 range. Um, in terms of what would that take, I think that would take a shift in focus away from you know, stock fundamentals, away from you know, um, sector rotation, et cetera, to more a macro-driven, you know, more concern over recession type of environment, in which case you know, VIX easily, I think, could be in the 20 to 30 range. But for VIX to be significantly higher, which is you know, a lot of time what people are playing for when they buy those VIX upside calls, um, I think that you need a correlation to one type of event. Um, so that, that's when I, you know, what I consider a liquidity or positioning-related you know, move. And that's when the dispersion trading or implied correlation trading can go severely wrong when you know, correlations move to one. So let's talk about dispersion trading. Yeah. You know, the motivation is to profit from shifts in correlation and differences between index options and options on individual stocks. And a common way to implement that is a position on the index file traded against a basket of single stock vol positions. And this year, as you note, you know, we've seen a lot of dispersion in stocks, which has helped push index vol lower and correlation has moved down. And the market rally earlier this year has been concentrated to a few mega cap tech stocks. So what are you seeing in terms of dispersion trading? And I understand you have a new dispersion index as well. Yeah, so I think, you know, let's let's start, you know, take a, take a step back and let me start with kind of what is dispersion because historically it has been a fairly, I would say, esoteric metric. I mean, it's very important, but it's been historically very difficult to track, right? So dispersion at the most fundamental level just measures how uh, differently stocks are behaving relative to each other. Um, and what, um, what we find, what we found is that over the past um, like year and a half, uh, we've been in a very historically elevated dispersion environment. In fact, if you look at dispersion levels, uh, on average over the past 18 months, it's actually been on par with what we saw in March of 2020, uh, even though index vol is obviously a lot lower. Um, and in terms of you know how do you track it, like you said, you measure the volatility of, of the relative of the stocks relative to the index. Um, so SIBO, and I think to help people track uh, dispersion and, and follow dispersion, we recently launched a uh, index DSPX. It's the S&P 500 Dispersion Index. 
Um, and what it is is similar to the VIX, which is a measure of implied volatility, right? What the market expectation for volatility is for the next 30 days, the DSPX index is an implied dispersion measure. So it measures how much, um, how much market is expecting the individual stocks to move relative to each other for the next 30 days. Um, for now, though, the index is just a metric, is a gauge, is not tradable, but we do have plans to launch uh, futures on the index sometime next year, I would say within the next, you know, six to nine months is, is the timeline, in which case, you know, you can actually trade expected changes in the implied dispersion environment. So making it much more accessible. Exactly. Let's talk about zero days to expiry options, given the tremendous growth in that space. So options that expire on the same day that they were traded, and volumes are now north of 50% of the total S&P 500 options volume. And with that, questions arise around the type of end user, the strategies used, and whether it's adding to the fragility of the market. And to me, it seems the end users of this product use it as a low-cost way to tactically trade around event risks such as FOMC meetings, and the type of strategies used generally have a capped risk profile rather than investors outright selling these options to collect premium. Yeah, so let me let me provide provide some color. So, like you know, as you mentioned, there's been explosive growth um, in, in zero DTE options trading, and there's been a lot of speculation as to who's trading it, what they're trading, and ultimately what the market impact um, of, of these um, activities you know, could be, right? So a couple of things I wanna emphasize. So 90, about 98% of zero DTE trading happens electronically, uh, meaning that third-party uh, observers have very little color into actually the, the makeup of the flow, which I think is the reason why you're getting all these you know, wildly different speculations and headlines around you know, what exactly is zero DTE trading. Right. Um, at SIBO, right, as the exchange where all SPX options are traded, we actually have you know, um, an incredible <laughs> visibility into this flow. We can tell for every transaction if it's buy, if it's sell, if it's customer, if it's market maker, if it's opening, if it's closing. So what we've done is published you know, reports and analysis kind of trying to elucidate and also kind of um, educate uh, investors on, you know, what's exactly what is going on in the space. So a couple of high level takeaways. One is that um, the activity is incredibly balanced. So yes, there's, there are people who are using zero TT options as directional bets, right? So they're making, you know, punts on, you know, like FOMC or other, you know, macro catalyst days. But there's also a lot of people who use these options for yield harvesting, right? And th those are typically happening in capped formats, like you mentioned. So instead of selling an outright call, outright put, they're typically selling call spreads, put spreads, eyeing condors. Um, so in limited risk format, but we do see the flow being very balanced between buyers of these options as well as uh, sellers of these options. Um, and the second thing is in terms of who's trading it, um, the, you know, if, if you want to look at the, where it's coming from, about you know, 80 to 90 percent of the flow is coming from what we term like a retail brokerage platform. However, the key distinction here is not not all flow from those platforms are truly like mom and pop retail, right? A lot of, you know, hedge funds and other institutional like investors also trade through some of those platforms. So when we do kind of dig into the data a little bit deeper, looking at not just where it's originating from, but also the frequency of the flow, the type of trades, the complexity of trades that, that that's coming through, um, our estimate, our best estimate is about, you know, 
somewhere between 30 to 40% of the flow in zero day options is what we would term as true retail. Um, and the rest is what we think is institutional. That's very interesting because there is that um, generalization that most of this activity is retail accounts punting intraday. Um, however, you know, you're, you're seeing it in the 30 to 40% zone. Yeah, so I think I think part of it is just the carryover from the pandemic, right? When people think about, oh, retail trading of options, they immediately think back to 2020, 2021, you know, the Reddit, meme stock, boom era in, in single stock options. And while that was true for single stock options, you know, the, the flow from retail was very much one way, it was very much buying of upside calls. It is not true at the index space. Um, so I think that that's the key distinction. And another thing that, you know, to, worth pointing out that you can tell the flow is balanced is that we've seen consistent flow in zero DT options, like I mentioned, 40 to 50% of SPX volume on any given day throughout different vol, vol regimes and market cycles, right? So last year when the VIX was in the 20 to 30 range, this year when the VIX was in the low to mid teens, um, last year when market was down 20, this year when the market's up, um, Regardless of what the market is doing and what vol is doing, zero DTE trading um, has been consistently 40 to 50% of SPX volume. So that tells you that it's not directionally biased very much one way, because if it were, you would expect that percentage to really start to move around depending on how the market is doing. And what other trends are you seeing in the data and also from a dealer's perspective? Yeah, so, so I mean... The, I think you're, what you're alluding to is, again, one of the top questions we always get around uh, zero-day options, just kind of how impactful is it um, on the underlying market on S&P, right? So if it is, you know, 50% of all SPX volume, and obviously we know short-dated options have very high amounts of gamma, you know, market makers on the other side will have to do a lot of hedging. Could this be either exacerbating intraday volatility in the market or suppressing it? Um, so that, you know, that... To answer that question, again, I go back to the balanced flow. So a lot of time people, when they make these, you know, allegations, they focus on the headline number, right? So, you know, 50% of volume in SPX is zero DTE. We're talking 500 billion notional. You know, you look at single lines, like 100,000 contract traded on that line. This is what is driving the market. But notional, high notional volume doesn't equal high risk, right? And the example I always go back to is like, say there's 100,000 contracts that trade on a particular line. If 55,000 was customer buying and 50,000 was customer selling, then actually there's net zero risk for market makers to hedge. So you could absolutely have high notional volume, but zero risk, right? If the flow is perfectly balanced. Um, and what we find in reality is that it's not exactly 50-50, but it's pretty close. So when we run this, you know, the, the market maker positioning analysis, looking at exactly, again, like at SIBO, we know exactly which transactions, you know, market makers, what direction um, and buy or sell that they're holding. When we run the market maker analysis, what we find is on average throughout the course of the day, net market maker positioning ranges somewhere between 100 to 600 million in gamma. Uh, and to put that in context, S&P futures trade about $400 billion a day. So we're really talking about potential hedging flows from market makers, about 0.1% of S&P daily liquidity, right? So this is uh, so this is really the scale that we're talking about, despite, you know, very large notional numbers. So on that, the impact in terms of intraday vol sounds pretty limited. Yeah, I think the word I used in my report was that de minimis. <laughs> So there, there has been some some people out there mentioning 
the 2018 Volmageddon episode. So they're referencing yeah. that period when the VIX blew up, which was related to exchange-traded products following you know, a period when VIX was printing single digits in 2017, and we could see that. So essentially, if we, if we do have interest rates moving higher and eventually break something, cause a liquidity event where the market drops, you're essentially saying that zero days to expiry options won't be at the scene of the crime. Yes, that, 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 that is my, that's my view. Um, and I think that's my view is back, back in the data that, we, um, that we've seen. And, you know, we've already seen kind of episodes of, of abrupt moves in the VIX, right? In March of this year, for example, um, during the SVB crisis. And, you know, if you look at the zero day options trading then, um, it really did not have a material impact uh, on the market. So, um, you know, I, I do think if something were to break, you know, if you were looking for sources of leverage in the market, um, it's not going to be in zero DTEs. You have to look at, you know, discretionary strategies where, you know, hedge funds and managers are starting to chase. Um, you have to look at systematic strategies that are have, have re-levered as realized volatility has remained low. I mean, there are definitely pockets of leverage currently in the system. I just don't see it, again, in, in, in zero DTE options where 90% of the flow isn't capped risk or limited risk formats. So thanks for joining us today on this episode of All Options Considered. Thanks for having me and happy to share, you know, the insights from um, our perspective at the exchange. Great. Thanks a lot.